0: friends this is reverend christopher and you're listening to peace in every language peace in every language is a travel podcast that celebrates the wonder and joy of travel as well as reporting on the constant comedic follies that inevitably meet us in life away from the places that we call home We will see how the notion of peace, that Old Testament ideology of wholeness and fulfillment, are present throughout the world and how we experience it and bring it home again. This segment of Peace in Every Language will follow us through several episodes as we travel through India and Nepal, and we are so glad to have you here with us today we're gonna start off today with a song that was composed by uh, some young girls some kids um, who we met along the way on our journeys. I'll tell you a little bit more about it after we listen together to the song, but I wanted to at least frame it before we started singing it. It's got a it's got a great beat. <laughs> and uh, we enjoyed uh, we enjoyed them singing it for us at the time. So, take a listen. <laughs> So the song, and I think I'm going to get this right, or at least a little bit close, is called uh, Kanasa... Kanasugararu. <laughs> uh, that's pretty close. Um, it, the translation is Dreamers, and it is written by these young girls, and the whole song... there You, you might have heard like kind of a, a chorus... Uh, The chorus says, We are children, we are dreamers, boys and girls who are driving toward making our dreams come true. Whether it's Vistar, Bangalore, Delhi, England, Africa, or everywhere, we try to make our dreams come true. The girls who wrote this song and who are singing it are part of a... Well, I'm trying to think of how to... Best phrase this. Um, they're part of a religious group that are known as the slaves of God. This group of females originally, further back, was created as uh, a group of women who just wanted to express themselves in dance. Uh, It was part of uh, their Hindu faith practices, and they they wanted to be able to dance as part of their um, religious experience. And so they did this at the temple. What happened, the way it was described to us as we were hearing uh, these stories, is that some of the higher castes and the priests who are of a higher caste also would watch them dance and would... Made the decision to take advantage of them, basically. Um, depending on what caste the women were in, uh, if they were of higher caste, they would just, you know, uh, demand sexual favors and all those kinds of things. And what that ended up doing was um, making the women not want to go dance there anymore. <laughs> um, and so, especially the higher, <clears throat> the the higher and, and mid-level castes, um, the women just said, "Well, I guess we're not going to do that anymore. Uh, the men have ruined it for us." Um, but what it did is it created, um, what our, uh, what our speaker referred to as a, an economy, um, problem because there was a desire for girls at the temples for sexual favors, but there were no longer any girls. And so what happened is they, kind of created this idea of the slaves of god in which people um could uh, usually of lower castes could give up uh daughters if they um, didn't want them you know they had a lot of the same troubles a lot of uh places in the ancient world struggled with with uh, valuing boy children over female children And um, so you could give your daughter up to the temple and she would grow up there at the temple. And when she came of age, she would become uh, one of those slaves of God who would be there for the sexual favors of men. Or um, you could go yourself or um, sometimes uh, priests would choose young girls um, uh, and, and say that it was kind of the will of the gods. So it is a deeply troubled system and the government of course at this point has come out against this practice um, but what that has done is it has driven it underground um, as many things that become illegal often are so the practice is illegal but the truth of it is that it still happens and so the girls that came uh, to sit with us um, and uh, to sing uh, are from that system. Um, a lot of times, even the daughters of women that are in that system also get blended into it or um, are you know considered without any uh, rights and things like that. And yet, they write this song, this beautiful song about being dreamers, and these are girls that have been taken out of that system um, by a group that's working there, by a non-profit group uh, that's that's working there and to, to find these girls, to find them in the secret system and to pull them out of it and to um, uh, renew their lives with education and, and foster homes and, and, and that kind of thing. The choruses of the song are really beautiful and heartbreaking too. They talk about... A mountain, a flowing river near to a village. There's lots of fish where we will play by the river and swim with the fish. Surrounding the area is a forest where deer and peacock and a variety of fruits are. We play games in nature. There are seasonal rains. We don't use chemical fertilizers for our crops. All of our food is organic. Which I thought was um interesting piece to their song. Our village is schooled with a bamboo, or has a school with a bamboo roof, and all the children study there happily. By playing, we learn all of our school subjects. By working in the kitchen and the garden, we learn practical things like mathematics and biology. In our food, we eat tasty things made with leaves. All the children get milk and curd and butter in every house, and no one is hungry. There is Christmas cake and Ganesha festival cake, and Birani. No one will beat us, no one will scold us, and everyone will greet one another. All of us are like brothers and sisters and friends, and we will all play instruments of different kinds and make our dream come true. So it's a long song. I only had uh, a snippet of it uh, that I cut down from about four four minutes or so, but it is just beautiful. It's a description of paradise in any language. It's uh, a a dream of what the world could be like. And it comes from these young girls who have been uh, pretty terribly abused in a lot of different ways. Um, That was something I wanted to share just as we started our uh, podcast today about Nepal. Um, We were here mostly for yoga. And so we didn't go to see any temples or anything like that. And it's been a really great period of um restful meditation and quiet and thoughtfulness and and prayer for for us. Um it's been necessary, I think, to be able to process uh some of the things that we've seen and, and talked about. Like uh groups like uh, these girls, um, groups like the folks from the Dalit village. Um, and it, it highlights, of course, you know, we have all of these same kinds of systems. We have human trafficking and, um, other ways that, uh, abuse, um, rears its head in the U S of course, um, seeing faces I think is important to that, and we don't often work hard enough to um, make contact and reach out to those populations. We've talked a lot about caste systems, and um, in reflection, a lot of us from the U.S. are not so sure we don't have a caste system, or we don't have uh, at least a system in place where we can go our whole lives and never, ever touch or reach out to or see folks from these other neighborhoods and I wonder too just even about um people in the Christian church uh we we tend to say that we have heart for justice and all those things but I wonder how many of us still find it hard to actually personally connect with people from these from these different groups um and why and what those what those reasons are um we blame time a lot but certainly it's not all time. Um, We can make time for the things that are important to us. And I wonder what the other pieces are that keep us from reaching out and connecting. Next, as we listen to the next piece that I had, it's a little bit of uh, life in Nepal. We flew into Kathmandu and uh, took about a two hour ride north And slightly east to a little farming village and uh, practiced yoga there at um, an ashram and did some hiking up in the mountains and things so this is just a little snippet of morning life. uh, Some birds and folks talking and this is uh, what we heard uh, every morning as we got up and had tea overlooking the sunrise and got ready for yoga and then breakfast. I am that's what that was. You know, they don't got it. You know, don't get don't got it. What are you? No, 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 as you can probably imagine it is pretty wonderful here the setting is rustic and rural but we have been so well fed and welcomed it is been a real pleasure to to live here with these with these folks um our yogi raj um and his wife have set up a great schedule you wake up in the morning you have hot tea which is this ayurvedic tea which is mostly turmeric and spices and black pepper and some other things a little bit of honey and um then you do yoga and then you have breakfast and all the food comes from their farm, which is, you know, no pesticides and all these, all these other kinds of good things. And so the other piece of, uh, Ayurvedic practice that I didn't know is that you have to eat the food. Um, you can't save it because when you save it, the longer the food is out after being cooked, the, uh, the less nutritional value it has. And it's kind of a, as I was understanding it, an a, a, a exponential loss kind of thing. So they don't really have a refrigerator. Uh, they, they had a very small one, like something you might find in a college dorm. Uh, but other than that, everything is made fresh and everything is eaten, which means that uh, his very sweet wife was constantly <laughs> trying to pile things on our plates. And um, uh, we ate really, really well while we were there. Um, Nepalese cooking, I think, is uh, traditionally a little bit uh, less spicy. There's usually a thing uh, that has has some spice to it um, in the meal, um, but a lot of it was just a lot of different kinds of flavors, which I think I really appreciated after being in India for, for two weeks. <laughs> um, was having a little bit of burnout, possibly, even though I love Indian food, so uh, that was great. Um, we also went on hikes with raj 's uncle Denise, or not his uncle, but sorry his brother um, and uh they call him uncle and um he lived there uh with them in this in the same uh, little little compound that that they uh were', were still working on we're still building uh, there's there's was an earthquake here in two thousand and fifteen uh, that was pretty bad uh, wrecked a lot of roads and houses um, I think there's something like eighteen or twenty percent of the communities that are still without housing or without uh, uh permanent housing um, there's a lot of little makeshift places that have that are still up um but they're they're recovering like like everyone else and and um so his brother would take us on hikes during the day and we go up into the foothills of the himalayas which i mean hiking at 27000 meters is no joke <laughs> even though i've i've done a lot of hiking um on the appalachian trail and some other places but um we got kind of the the locals view of a lot of the trails and a lot of the places we went up to a temple it was really high up on this mountainside And uh, he said, this is where we used to study yoga, and this is where we come for festivals and things like that. And we went up to these waterfalls on another day, and he was like, oh, we used to come here and swim uh, when we were kids, and sometimes I still do. And, you know, he showed us all, this is my favorite spot for meditation. So it was really, really neat. Um, It was excellent. And left space for thought and for kind of reconsidering a lot of the things that, that we had seen and it was interesting in this kind of these moments of uh quiet and isolation I had this realization that there are um you know so many similarities of course between um the US and, and here and, and a lot of places because everyone were were more alike than we are different um when you look at it There were two pieces of isolation I was considering that that we all share um When we have urban areas, we find that we have isolation as individuals, and we feel that. If we're not careful about it, if we don't find community, it's easier to become isolated in urban areas. That's always, or not always, but often the complaint of people that are, come from rural areas to urban areas. Uh, People that go the opposite direction. I think consider there is an isolation in rural areas as well. But the isolation in rural areas is isolation as a community. The whole group are kind of isolated from the outside world. They kind of build their own world within that. And it's been interesting as we kind of have these experiences, these branching out experiences, and I was talking a minute ago about being able to reach out to other communities. It seems like part of the fight against having this this deep wholeness, this deep peace, this deep shalom, and being able to share it with other people comes from our tendency towards isolation in whatever setting we're in, urban, rural, um, or anything in between. So I think that's part of what we are challenged by. I think the other part that we're challenged by is our tendency to, within that isolation, uh... To create villains. Um, We talked about the identity politics that the uh, Hindu um, folks who are in power right now in India are are practicing, and how to do that, to excuse yourself from wrong and hurtful actions, um, or to allow yourself the privilege to not see your actions as hurtful, really comes from this need to perpetuate uh, a, a, a villainous enemy um, in in India. Uh, they they need someone. They need to see someone as polluted. They need to see someone as impure uh, in order to make them the enemy of things. Uh, in the U.S., I don't know. We could have another whole panel discussion on on that and try to figure out who our villains are whether it's uh, Muslims or unknown immigrants who uh we feel threatened by or just you know African American populations or quote unquote urban populations which is a lot of time just code word for uh African American folks um I don't know I think maybe there there's more than there's more than one place that we try to create an enemy And I feel like the way out of this, the way around this, is to create a place or a path where traumatized people can become the leaders of reconciliation and uh, become the leaders of a redemptive Christian outlook. Some of the other folks and I on the trip talked about trying to build a new ecclesiology for Uh, the Church. Ecclesiology is basically just, you know, a theology that looks at um, the Church itself and how the Church operates and functions and and basically expresses itself and does the things that Church is supposed to do or kind of answers the question of what is Church supposed to do in this place, in this time. And maybe it's time for a new unified ecclesiology that can deal with some of the world issues that, that are happening giving a voice to traumatized people and giving the ability to to traumatize folks or traumatized populations to lead is healing for that group and also, I think, informative to the other groups who have traditionally been in power Um, if they they let themselves be informed. um, Like I said, I think privilege is uh, blinding for a lot of us. Um, It's easy to do. Um, I was recently at a conference and privilege was, I thought, aptly described as the pieces of life that we don't have to think about. So your privilege as uh, someone who is educated means that, you know, you don't have to think about whether you're smart enough for a particular job, maybe. Um, Your privilege as uh, someone of wealth and means, means, uh, you're privileged to not have to think about, well, if my car breaks down, it will wreck my life forever. (laughs) You know, um, that I will lose my job if I can't, uh, if this car doesn't make it for three more years, I will lose my job and my whole life will, will be wrecked. Um, if, if you are in a place of wealth and, and privilege, that's what that means. You don't have to think about that. Um, and I same same for white privilege, which I think has become I don't know kind of a trigger word for <laughs> for folks. But I I think describing it in that way maybe takes some of the the hurt that we've put into it, um, and lets us just see that you know, that's just something you don't have to think about. So it's your your privilege not to have to think about it. So listening to a population that does have to think about it can be helpful, and in in seeing how we can create this idea of shalom, to bring this peace to everyone, to bring this wholeness, to bring this sense of uh, unity and care to one another. The yogi that we were with also said something else, which I thought was interesting. Um, there's been a lot of noise and a lot of traffic and especially, I mean, we didn't even realize it really till we came up to Nepal we are like, oh, they're not honking their horns constantly. <laughs> um, in India, you know, it's just horns constantly. It's just every person uses their horn to say, this is me and I'm here and I don't want you to hit me. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned that before or not, but um, the, the, the contrast when we got up here was like, oh, yeah, that's right. That happens a lot. So there's just a lot of noise and a lot of things going on. And our yogi said at one point... Uh, it's about being able to bend your mind around the thing so if you're lying in bed this was his example, if you're lying in bed and you hear a dog barking and you want to say oh I wish that, oh, I can't sleep because that dog is barking you um, are flexible in your mind and you allow the dog to be a kind of music or a happy thing and you think about the the joy of that dog as their as their uh, barking into the into the evening air, <clears throat> and you get to the point where suddenly, if the dog stops barking, you will miss the dog barking <laughs> uh a little euphemistic, maybe, but I thought it was an interesting point in uh trying to um, see or be a part of other cultures or um see or be a part of other people's lives. The idea of being flexible and changing our perception about the things that initially maybe annoy us or feel uncomfortable to us is a really valuable practice, I think. That was our class practicing the Om and, and Santi chant that we did twice, on either end of our yoga practice, our hour and a half yoga practice that we did twice a day. It was a lot of yoga. It was really good, but um, the Santi portion of that is uh, translates as peace, and it translates similarly to the way Shalom. Translates. It's a sense of peace and wholeness, peace for your neighbor, peace for yourself, peace for your whole environment, your world. That's the wish that we have. Thought that was an appropriate way to end what is our time together on these podcasts. We will have um, one more episode. We'll wrap up when we get back to our home and kind of reflect on a little bit of. How this entire trip has gone As we leave I'll have one more uh, recorded piece here to share The last night that we were In India We went to um, a little uh, open air restaurant And they happened to have a band playing And one of the songs, the last song that the band played As we were getting ready to leave And as we were coming to the end of our trip Was leaving on a jet plane so uh in a in a funny moment we all kind of looked at each other and we're we're just like wow the universe has really (laughs) responded uh and gifted us with this so we'll end with that Peace in Every Language is a raw recording podcast that is made as we travel, so thank you for your patronage and patience as we go. And now as we close this episode, we are going to remind ourselves of the words of Dr. Carson Brisson, who closed every class with a dear love and appreciation of our work as students. May you be blessed to be a blessing. And may peace, true peace and wholeness find you wherever you are and wherever you call home. Shalom.